You can grab a seat. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Glad you're here at Hope Church. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 again as we continue to work our way through these two chapters, asking the question, who is the real Jesus? What is this guy all about? How did he change history like he did? What has he come to do? What is the relevance for you today? All the questions that you should be asking, and you kind of think you know the answer to, until you read the Scripture again and you realize, wow, maybe I knew that at one point. It's bigger than I remember. He is more intrusive, uh, maybe, than you remember. We've been talking about that throughout this entire series, that there is a constant sort of theme in these two chapters of Matthew about Christ's authority, grounded in who He is as God, but also his love, a love that is beyond your expectation for anybody in authority, much less God. You kind of expect God to be something that is so far, so transcendent, so holy, so judgmental. Why would you expect to be able to have a relationship with him? And yet, through Christ, we're seeing that that the uniqueness of the Christian gospel is the way those two things play together, that he is totally authoritative. This is not a God that is weak-willed. This is not a God that accepts sinful disobedience and just lets it kind of roll off his back. This is a God of holiness and God of surprising love. A God that says things about you, that desires relationship with you in a way that I I don't think you really get. So I want to take a step further today. I, I want you to see that when he comes to be with you, he has come to bring joy. As Jesus said it in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just alive, but living. Do you know the difference? One is like a physiological state. The other is enjoying the fullness, embracing something bigger. Living, man. As a comedian talked about the living room. What do you do in the living room? Not much. You should, though. It's the living room. There should be wonderful things that happen, and then you're living. Jesus is talking about an abundance. Abundance of life. I don't know if that's really what you want, but he's come to bring it. I want you to see it with me for a second here. He says in Matthew 9, 14 to 17, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What? <laughs> I don't know if you've read that before. I hope that you have. If you're new to Christianity, we're so thrilled you're here, and I hope that you haven't. I hope there's lots of people that have never read this before. If you're reading it for the first time, what? That's what people feel who have read this many, many times. What is Jesus talking about? They were asking about fasting. 
So you have the disciples of John. When it says that, it's referring to John the Baptist. There's John who wrote the, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation, but he's one of these disciples that hang in, is hanging out with Jesus. There was another guy named John the Baptist who was a precursor to Jesus. He was sent in order to prepare the way, and he preached a gospel of repentance to the people of Israel. He was very Jewish, preaching to very Jewish people, and he was calling them to repent, meaning to come back to a love of the Lord, to come back to a relationship with the Lord, to leave all of these things that they had chosen instead. He was very critical of the Pharisees in particular. We don't get a lot of the preaching of John the Baptist, but what we do, he's pretty intense towards these Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers. I don't know what's going on in your evangelism. Uh, I don't know what it looks like when you go and talk to somebody new about Jesus pretty intense if you use the phrase brood of vipers in there anywhere. Uh, but John the Baptist did. He was an intense guy. And he had these disciples who also were following his message. They were calling on repentance for the people. They were pretty severe cats. They lived in the desert. They wore harsh clothing. They ate things they found. It was, it was a, a pretty austere lifestyle. Now, John the Baptist is a, a good guy. Jesus said about him that among those born of women, there was nobody greater than John the Baptist, and yet, who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him, right? But John the Baptist was an important guy, a good guy. And yet, his disciples come, and they start questioning Jesus. Now, you probably think the Pharisees are behind this, and I can understand that, because they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So they're, they're saying, what, what about us? Why is it, Jesus, that your disciples seem to always be having this great time? And Jesus responds to this question by starting to talk about weddings. He uses a wedding analogy and says, who fasts at a wedding? Great question. What a bummer if you invite somebody to your wedding and everybody's eating and they're cutting the cake and smushing it on the bride's nose or whatever, and you're in the back going like, sorry, I'm fasting. <laughs> really? Why did you come? I mean, you don't do that. And Jesus is making the... Of course you don't do that. Who would do that? So what he's saying is not, should you fast at a wedding? What he's saying is, is him with us like a wedding? And he's saying it is. We're going to continue to process that through this message, but stop for a minute. Don't you expect God to be John the Baptist? Who's going to make you go live in the desert and sleep in the cold and wear camel fur and eat locusts and tell you about how the axe is laid at the foot of the tree and that you're a brood of vipers? Don't you expect that? That you need to be repent and be baptized? Well, you get that. John says that he baptizes with water, but Jesus baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit, that he's going to be a more intense version of whatever John is. But John also says about Jesus that he's the groom. When all these people start leaving John the Baptist's ministry to go and follow Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples are like, what about this? We're losing a lot of our heat. All these people are going after Jesus. What do you think about that? And John says, it's the joy of the, the best man to step out of the way when the groom comes and see the bride go to the groom. 
This Jesus has come and he's bringing something greater. He's not less than John the Baptist, but he's also bringing something more. And the something more that he's bringing, Jesus is using as an analogy, a wedding, a marriage. With everything that that means, take, take a second, start thinking about that. And then Jesus goes into what I think is probably even more hard for us to access. He starts talking about wine and wineskins and something about garments and patches. What do we mean by that? What is he getting at? Well, let's understand for a second kind of what he's talking about with fasting, what he's talking about with this wedding, and then kind of get at a little bit of what he's talking about, about the newness that he's come to bring in his ministry. First, John the Baptist's disciples, of course, they were fasting. They were going to be fasting like John. They would have been living a pretty austere lifestyle, calling on the people to repent. This takes place throughout the Old Testament. You have mandated fasts, but it's really pretty few. In fact, I think there's only one. The rest of the year, the rest of the Old, the Old Testament, whenever you see people fasting, they're fasting for a specific purpose that they see and are responding to. And a lot of times it's a fast for repentance, calling on God's grace to give them uh, forgiveness, to give them repentance, to call the people back to holiness. Seems to be what John the Baptist's disciples would have been doing. You also have people like the Pharisees, and the Pharisees fast twice a week. You remember us talking about that? The Pharisee that looks over at the, the tax collector and he thanks God that he's not like sinful men, but like he's definitely not like this tax collector, but instead he fasts twice a week. We have historical evidence of this outside of Scripture where they talk about when the, disciple, or the uh, Pharisees would fast. And so the disciples, because they don't want to be Pharisees, would also fast two days a week. They just pick different days <laughs> to not be like the Pharisees. Well, that's good. Because why are the Pharisees fasting twice a week? Well, that parable that Jesus taught made it obvious. They're fasting for other people to see their righteousness. They're fasting out of pride. They're fasting to prove something about themselves to God and the community. Well, we're not going to do that either. So what do we have instead? We want to be Jesus' disciples. We want to be like those guys that are sitting behind him watching this conversation take place. What are those guys doing? Well, they are not fasting. They are feasting. Understand this about Jesus' ministry. You hang with Jesus, you're feasting. Why? Well, it's not like Vegas, you know. I don't think they're walking through with like steak and crab on top and all kinds of wild, weird feasting. But every time Jesus is involved with the food, there's a lot. When he, he multiplies bread, this is a famous miracle that he does twice. He's got all these people, and he says to the disciples, you feed them. We don't need to send them away. They've come to the feast. And they're like, well, we don't have any food. Take years' wages to feed all these people. And then Jesus takes what they have. He prays. He breaks the bread, and all of a sudden, there's enough food to feed everybody. And you would expect a God who has that level of power and that level of knowledge about how many people are there to know how many pieces of bread to make. As a dad, I'm always trying to get the exact right number of napkins for my family. Never come close. I've always got a thousand too many or a thousand too few. Never come close. I always want to figure out, as somebody who hosts parties sometimes, what is the right number of pizza? Why do we either have way too few or I have three boxes in the fridge afterward? Why can't it be perfect? Why wouldn't God have that perfect level of knowledge about how much food everybody's going to eat? Well, he does. So what's he saying by the fact? That when he makes food, there are baskets left over. What is he saying by the fact 
that when, when he goes to a feast by Matthew or Zacchaeus, these tax collectors who come to Christ, he's probably not telling them to tamp it down. It says that they throw a feast and they invite everybody. Do you think that they're scrimping and saving on that feast? Jesus' first miracle, when he turns water into wine. It's crazy. It's at a wedding. Hello. We're going to think about that more. But he is told by his mother and the people at the feast that they're out of wine. Ha! So embarrassing. And they still got however many days of feasting they do for their wedding feasts in those days. Jesus doesn't help them turn water into wine in the amount needed. The Bible, through John chapter 2, is very clear that he took six stone cleansing jars, each containing 20 to 30 gallons. He told the servants to fill them to the brim with water. And then he turned it into the most magnificent wine, such that the person who tasted it was overwhelmed at the quality. Little did he know the quantity. Jesus didn't make a little bit of wine. He made somewhere between, if my numbers are correct, 120 and 180 gallons of wine. How many people are at this feast? I mean, a gallon of wine, a box of wine is hilarious to me. Why are you selling it by the box? Jesus had 120 gallons to 180. What is he saying? He's the master of the feast. That when you're with him, you are coming to someone who is there to give you joy. Somebody who's generous. (laughs) Somebody who has everything he needs to give you more than enough. Jesus is saying to these people that have come to question him, how, how, how can they mourn? How, how can they fast when the groom is with them, when they're all together, when the party has happened? He's telling us a ton about himself. He's telling us a ton about what he's come to do, that he has come to bring joy. Now, I say that, and I try to make those examples from Scripture in order for you to see that a wedding is taking place, that that young love is happening, that people are coming together, that the best food and the best drink is rolled out, and that it's symbols of something deeper, of more, something more lovely, something that we haven't fully comprehended, but we all feel. Everybody does the Cupid Shuffle. Why? It's not a great song. But it's an obvious, clear instruction set for how you can show just a little bit of corporate joy at the moment of somebody else coming into this relationship, this marriage. Jesus is saying that this is pointing to what he has come to do, the joy that he has come to bring. And you may object. You can kind of take the John, uh, uh, John the Baptist disciples or Pharisee perspective here, and you can kind of object I don't think of Jesus that way. I don't think of God that way. I don't think of religion that way. I don't come to church with the same expectation that I go to somebody's house for a party. I don't come to church on a Sunday morning with the same expectation that I have when I go to somebody's house for a celebration, for a feast. I come to church, and it's kind of a bummer. Now, not Hope Church, obviously, but people's idea of church. People's idea of church is that you're going to get starched, that you're going to get suppressed, that you're going to be bored. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? 
We expect God to come and to bring rules. We expect God to come and to tamp down. We expect God to come and to make things difficult. But Jesus is saying that he's come to do something totally different. And I think that's what he's getting at with this analogy of the wineskins and the cloth. I've, I've kind of thought about this as covenantal, and I think that's still appropriate. I think we could take lots of different things from the Old Testament and see how, now that Christ has come, they've been changed. They've been new. That if you try and insert Jesus into the old forms, he's going to break them, and they're not going to work, and nobody's going to understand who he is. That instead, we need this new understanding of who he is and this new form of worship that reflects this new Jesus that we have. It's a perfect fulfillment of what we have in the Old Testament, and it's a changing. There's a a newness that takes place. And yet, you got to have to do some homework for me to be able to do that in a way that makes sense and is helpful. So I think instead, a better way for us to, to see this and to see it quickly is to understand that what Jesus has come to do is to take these old understandings that you have of how you relate to God and burst them. To show you that you need something new, that you need a new way to see who he is. Apparently, wine was put into these animal skins to ferment. And if you put them into a fresh skin, as the wine fermented and gases were released, that fresh skin would stretch with the wine. But if you put it into an old wine skin that was already hard and kind of crusty, then it would burst the wine skin. You lose the wine, you lose the wine skin. Same thing with the cloth. They would have a fuller that would go through and work the cloth in order to get it where the oils are out of it, and it is kind of ready to be used as a cloth. But if there's a tear and you put in a new cloth that hasn't been worked in that same way, that, that patch will shrink and it'll stretch and it'll rip and it'll make a worse hole than you had. That's the analogy. The point is that he's come to bring something new. He's come to make something new. So as you approach Christianity, ask yourself very seriously what you've come to find in it what you want from him. And I, again, I'm, I'm speaking to two different audiences in my head, but you're, you're going to have really similar thoughts here. If you're brand new to Christianity, you might be thinking that what you want is just a little relief. A relief from guilt, relief from anxiety, relief from fear, relief. You may be thinking that you actually do actually want a little bit of structure in your life. You certainly want it for your kids. So you have these kids, your life starts getting ridiculous, and you think, okay, well, maybe religion will help. You know, let's bring them there and see if they can kind of crack something into them. You want some religion. Maybe you do actually want a little healing. Yeah, you got some stuff that's in your past, and you need people to work through it with you. You can't afford a therapist, so here you are. You're looking for some kind of healing. Maybe you do want a little bit of meaning, even a little bit of mission. You get a little bored with your life. You want something that maybe the Lord can give you that, that gives your life a little bit of oomph, a little bit of purpose. Well, I, I mean, I could say that about people that are investigating Christianity, but I could say that about people every day that I talk to that are in the church. And they flirt with a lot of this stuff. You come back to it. You open it up again. You start going through your spiritual disciplines again because you have this feeling that you do desire a little bit more of one of those things. That's not what Jesus has come to do. He's not come to sprinkle a little bit of relief or a little bit of structure on top of your life. He's a new wine who's come to bring new wineskins. He's come to make all things new. He's not come to just associate with you like an accountant who's come to do your books for a moment and then goes away or a lawyer who comes to help you in a sticky situation and then goes away. He's come to marry you. Whoa. <laughs> 
Best analogy that I've heard from it is a guy named George McDonald, as told by C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to attribute both of them. But it says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. Those are the things that you kind of hoped he would do. You hoped he would fix some of this anxiety. You hoped he would fix some of this shame that you have. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. These are British people, so. And does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Yeah, he's going to make all things new, and that's going to be terribly uncomfortable. But why? Because he's come to bring himself. He's come to bring love to your life. I think about marrying Rachel. Now, I'm not Jesus, and she's not the church, but when I met Rachel, she was finishing college. She had this great PR job lined up in Nashville. She was going to stay at her parents' house for a little while, get everything figured out. She had a nice car. She had a perfect, tight, fixed little life. And then I came in, and I married her. And I took her to Louisville, Kentucky, to go from Nashville, where everybody apparently wants to go. I grew up there, and all of a sudden, I live here now, and I talk to people, and they say, oh, you got a little draw. Where are you from? And I say, Nashville. And they're like, oh, I just went. What? When I grew up there, it was just this little cow town, and now everyone wants to go. Apparently, number one uh, bachelorette party spot in the nation. (laughs) Claim to fame. So I took her from the number one bachelorette city in the nation to Louisville, Kentucky. What's going on in Louisville? Exactly. You know, nothing. It was terrible. We were super poor. As soon as I took her up there, we looked around at all these apartments and she wept. I was trying to talk about how exciting this was and how great this was. We're both looking in the same direction. And I look over and realize that her lap, her dress was stained with the tears that were running off her face because it was going to be such a dirty place to live. And we could afford nothing that didn't smell like cigarettes. And so her life changed. She had to live with this big, uncomfortable man. I brought babies into her life. Incredibly uncomfortable in the arrival and in execution, right? Just covered in baby muck for years. But what did, we, what did we build? What did I bring? Love. I brought something that was love. Now, of course, Jesus is not some man-child that Rachel married. Jesus is a true king and a true lover who has come to bring such tremendous joy and such a tremendous upheaval into your life. Do you understand why it may be difficult for you to want this? Do you understand why you absolutely should want this? He's come to bring a totally new joy into your life, to give you a real forgiveness and a real acceptance. This talking about marriage is talking about you not being united to somebody who's roughly compatible and maybe going to be a good companion for your days. He is talking about reuniting you who has been made for this one experience of full joy with God, being reunited to... God. When we talk about the blood and we sing about the blood, we're singing about the fact that he had to die 
to shed his blood in order for you to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with God. That's why he talks about how he is going to go away and then we will fast. He had to die. He was raised. He didn't stay dead, but he had to die for you and I to be forgiven, for you and I to be cleansed. He brings you this new joy of being forgiven. Your your gospel situation is not that you need to earn your way, that you have to go live in the desert and eat locusts, or you have to go and sit under the Pharisees and fast twice a week. His, His gospel to you is a completed and full forgiveness package that he has got ready to roll. All you have to say is, yes, Oh, I pray that you would. He, he's come to bring a new joy, and he's come to bring new love. Not just him, but through him, everyone. Jesus loves people. If you love Jesus, if he loves you, he doesn't, he's not content with you guys just hanging with each other. He makes your life messy. He brings in babies. He brings in people. Your eyes have to be opened all of a sudden, not just to yourself and your own situation, your own relationship with God and your own kind of pursuit of a life without shame and guilt. But he, he now has given you a whole host of people that you have to now care for and love and be disappointed by and be overjoyed with. He brings into your life new joy. He brings into your life new loves. And he brings into your, your life new practices to bring all of this about. Don't miss what Jesus does say. He does say that we should fast, that we will fast. I don't want to make him a liar, but if I'm real, I don't know how many of you have ever done this. Have you? He says, he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So we've got to. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. This is a little bit of that kind of kicking down doors I was talking about. He does expect us to fast, and yet he tells us about how that's supposed to take place. He does say that this is a new wine and a new wineskin, so let's be careful to understand what's taking place here. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Make fun if you want. I think every single person hopes that somebody's going to ask them if they want something while they're fasting, so they can be like, actually, I can't can't. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> what are you not supposed to talk? Well, I'm, I'm fasting. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because you want somebody to be impressed. He's saying that's what the hypocrites do. Instead, you, you, they, they've received their reward. That's that small kind of smug response from people. That's the whole reward you get for your pride. But verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This isn't fasting like we've had. This is a new fasting. This is a fasting that helps you to long for His return. A fasting that helps you to focus on Him as your satisfaction. I'm going to tell you a little bit about fasting, and I want you to do it. But understand that the point of this sermon, the reason that we spent the majority of our time on it, the point of this sermon is not that you fast. The point of this sermon is that you find your joy in Christ. The means to that joy includes fasting. The goal is 
is joy. The goal isn't that we become people who can chart our fast numbers as a group. The goal is joy. The goal is Him. The means that He prescribes is, in fact, fasting. And the the way that I want you to go about it is understand, you need to evaluate what gives you the most joy in your life. Take a moment right now. Really, really, really. What's the list? What gives you the most joy in your life right now? What do you take the most satisfaction from? It can be as commonplace as meals. It can be as deep and wonderful as long-term relationships. What is it? What gives you the most satisfaction? What gives you the most security? When you see the grocery bill after inflation, what makes you less nervous? When the hospital calls, what makes you less nervous? Where do you go for security when your world gets shaken? If it's not Him, it can be legitimate. It can be wonderful. It can be given by Him. But if it's not Him, it needs to get less and He needs to become greater. How do you do that? Well, fasting. It's not the only way, but it's a great one. What you do is if it's something that's given by God and good and you can set it down for a while, set it down for a while. If it's social media, and I don't know, I'm not sure that you can do social media in a godly way, but let's just imagine that it is. It's something totally neutral. And you just need to set it down. You need to fast from it for a week, for the rest of your life. No, for, for a period of time, and just let it shrink and let the Lord grow in your heart. Maybe it is food. Well, that's easy. Give up food for a minute. Food's a good gift by God, but some of us, our gods become our bellies. And really, we're okay because there's something in the fridge we're going to eat later. That's not okay. Take a day. Eat dinner on Tuesday, and then don't eat again until dinner on Wednesday. Not so that you can just lose weight. Not so that you can just just grow in self-control. But so when every, that pain hits you that you're hungry... You get to tell yourself by way of your body, no, 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 no. I am not hungry just for food. I'm hungry for the bread of life. I'm hungry for the feast and the feast master. I'm hungry for my groom. And you're going to tell yourself that, and you're going to use the rumbles in your belly because your body and your soul are connected to make that more real. Maybe it's something that you can't get rid of. If you say, what is really my idol is my wife and my children, you can't, you know, say, hey, guys, (laughs) listen, I've been idolatrous, so you're going to stay at your mom's for a couple months while (laughs) I work some stuff out. No, of course not. If it is something like that, hey, food's a great way to go about it. Use the food thing as a way to say, listen, my joy is not only in my spouse, but primarily in my spouse. As you go through this, it's a way, it's a new kind of fasting that is a way of helping you to put your hope, put your trust in Him, not anything else. As you do, as you go to Him for that joy, He'll reward that search. He'll prove Himself to be a greater joy. Do you trust Him? This is the real Jesus. He's not come that you may have rules He's come that you may have life. Now, having him living his way 
is going to help you to understand more and more who he is and experience more and more fully the joy that he has for you. Don't you want that? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that we would become a fasting people and that we wouldn't really know it. That every single person in this room would get excited about doing what you've commanded and fasting in order to tune their heart to sing your praise. And yet, we would be so obedient that while everybody in the room's doing it, nobody's talking about it. Instead, what we're talking about is our increased joy in the God that we love. Instead, what we're talking about is the bread that you're giving and feeding our souls that we're able to, to break and multiply and share with all the people that you put around us. Lord, give your church life and do it in this seemingly archaic, maybe seemingly weird way that humanity has used since its inception. Lord, teach us to fast so that we might grow in our love for you. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.